Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Infusion Church. If you could find your seats, I would appreciate that. Thank you. We have a guest pastor this morning. His name's Wes Van Fleet. He's from uh, Kaleo Church in El Cajon, and he's going to be preaching for us this morning out of Daniel, uh, chapter 9, verse 24. I'll read that scripture, and then he's going to come up here and minister. And I heard great things from the first service uh, about the sermon this morning, so I'm looking forward to Dear West Preach, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, reads like this, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Wes, would you come up? I told you I wasn't going to pray, but I'm going to. We'll pray for Wes. Come on up, bro. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. This, this gift that you have given to us, Heavenly Father, that is profitable for us, Lord. I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, Lord. Open our blind eyes and our deaf ears, Lord. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to hear what you want us to hear this morning. Lord, and that you would empower our brother Wes this morning to minister boldly, confidently, knowing who you are and, and what you've done and who you are working in and through him and working in our lives, Father. May he have a boldness that comes only from you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well then, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give a quick disclaimer and then I will, I'll probably pray as well because that's what we're supposed to do, right? Uh, man, this, this text, Daniel 9, is the most difficult text, I would argue, in all of Daniel, if not all of the Bible. Uh, you, you might have different opinions, but uh, Daniel 9 has had more ink spilled over it, especially this specific text, than any other. Uh, if you read a commentary or even go to a certain school or anything like that, or even different churches, you're going to hear uh, guys get really sweaty over this verse, and especially over the passage. And I'll be honest with you guys, uh, there are three or four major views on our text today. And what I'm going to ask is, maybe some of you have already a viewpoint in Daniel 9 and, and think it has these specific fulfillments, um, while others of you might have a different view, I'm going to ask that we, we proceed humbly, uh, knowing that we can have differences on a text like this, because I'll be honest, any good commentators or pastors or scholars will say, you just can't tackle this passage. Uh, you, you just can't be absolutely firm across the board on it, because it's, it's difficult. So uh, I hope that we can Listen humbly, and I can assure you, I, I am not the master of this passage. Uh, but we have been preaching through Daniel uh, at, at Kaleo Church, and this is the passage that fell last night for us. This is where we're at, so I get to come in and try to do the, the fun and hard work of getting you involved in the most difficult passage in Daniel. So hopefully you will uh, 
give me a little bit of grace, and, uh, and yeah, we'll work through it. So let me pray, and we'll get to work. Father, we, we acknowledge that, oh Lord, we need you, that your, your word is sufficient, but often it's our own minds and our own hearts that are not. Oh God, we come here this morning uh, confessing that, that we do need you, and so I pray for those who are feeling burdened, who are feeling overwhelmed, who are feeling that, Lord, this world is often just too hard. Lord, would you come and through your word increase our hope? Oh God, as we want to be faithful to your son and his words in Luke 24 when he made clear two different times that all of the scriptures, the Old Testament especially, were about him. Oh Lord, would you use this difficult passage? Would you help us not to miss the great beauty and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ by being bogged down by details in this passage? But Lord, would we see him high and lifted up and would we leave here with our hearts comforted and an increased hope in our lives? So Spirit, come and do that great work that you do, that the Lord Jesus, when he said it's better that he left so that the Spirit would come, would you come now, convict us of our sin, draw our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, and by gazing at him would we be changed from one degree of glory to another. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's do this thing. All right, so my grandpa, he, he was uh, probably the biggest influence on my life. He, he died... Uh, almost 12 years ago now from colon cancer. Uh, he was not a believer, but he was a wise man, and I, I really loved him and, and miss him dearly. He used to have me come out to Lake Havasu, where him and my, my grandma lived when I was a younger kid, and in the middle of the day when it'd be about 120 degrees, uh, trying to teach me some life lessons, would have me crawl under his Cadillac with him and would start to teach me how to work on a car. Now, you can imagine as a young kid who only cared about skateboarding and air conditioning, which seemed to go against each other, but I would start to complain, and, you know, the heavy sighs and the, the breaths, because who, what kid wants to sit under a Cadillac in 120-degree weather? And as he would be telling me about each and every single part of the engine and what each bolt did and all these different things, and he would hear me sigh and complain. He would always say this phrase to me that, that has always stuck with me. He always said, Wes, don't miss the woods for the trees. And this phrase stuck with me, and in short, if you've never heard it, it, it basically means don't miss the, the bigger picture for the small details. Now, if you're anything like me, I, I like details. I focus on the little things. I think that the little things need to be paid very close attention to for the larger things to work well. And I can often miss the bigger things that God is doing in my life. And while my grandpa meant it for the, the greater good of a Cadillac, uh, I think there is some things we can take away, especially in regards to the Christian life. Now, for some of you, it might be things like your job where you are called to pay specific attention to one thing in one role, often missing the bigger goal or uh, picture of 
your workplace. For others of you in here, you might be so bogged down by the day in and day out beautiful yet difficult calling to raise kids. In fact, that all you see is your kids doing this and that, and you forget that there's a bigger world of image bearers outside of the walls of your home. You see, whatever it is for us, a lot of times we can get so bogged down in the small things that we miss the bigger realities of what God is doing in this world. Well, our passage in Daniel 9 is a lot like that. It's one of those passages that you can very easily focus on the trees and miss the woods. You see, there hasn't been a passage, like I said, that's been more debated. I went to, I'm going to use a fancy theological term for a second. If you don't know what it means, I apologize, and I'll explain later. But I went to a highly dispensational college uh, who made me take a class on this passage that lasted a semester long. I left the class feeling like I was going to throw up and unsure of what just happened. Uh, And then I went to a reformed or more covenantal seminary, and they gave me a different view. And so I've had both sides of this and felt like I am one that's guilty of missing the woods for the trees with this passage, trying to argue what it means, who it points to, all these things. And that is not what I want for us today. And to be honest, the second we start to miss the woods for the trees in a passage like this, I'm going to argue that we actually miss exactly what God is trying to teach us. You see, this is a very beautiful passage. It's a very clear passage. If we don't get bogged down by every detail and the timing and all these things, we actually, I would argue, will be led to worship rather than just being right. So that's my hope for us. My hope for us is that God would give us an understanding of this marvelous passage in a way that would lead us to doxology today, that we would be able to stand after this and truly worship our God. Well, to give you a little bit of context, it's, uh, I've, I've been laughing at God's timing because when I decided to preach through Daniel at Kaleo, uh, this was the passage I did not want to do. Uh, and Josh asked me this week, hey, can you come, come, come preach? Uh, he has a sense of humor, and we like to banter about different theological things. So at first I took it as a joke, uh, but now I'm here. So <laughs> to give you a little bit of context to help, Daniel 9 starts the first 19 verses with Daniel's prayer. It's this beautiful prayer. Uh, it's marked by Daniel's adoration of God's mercy towards God's people. It's, it's one of Daniel confessing his sins and the sins of the exiles. And it's even, even Daniel petitioning God to fulfill and answer all of his promises. Well, in Daniel 9 earlier, Daniel starts to pray these things immediately after he had received the word of the Lord from his contemporary, Jeremiah. Jeremiah had written part of his Uh, letter, and Daniel had received it, and it had basically said that the 70 years of exile for God's people were almost over. Now, for Daniel, he has been in exile since he was a teen. Most would argue that at this point in Daniel, he's close to 70, 80, maybe even older. Uh, And so he's been in exile a long time. So he receives this word from Jeremiah that God's almost done with this 70 years. Can you guys imagine the hope 
that would start to heighten, right? right? Hope is, isn't any longer just this far-off, distant thing for Daniel, but it's something that's becoming more and more of a reality. I started to wonder, what is it that Daniel would have felt? What are some of the things that Daniel would have thought? Right? He's been in Babylon for decades. And he's starting to think, what, what was home like? The home of my youth. Well, will Judah be better than it was when I left? Will all the pain and, and all of the trials that I've endured over the last decades finally be made right? Well, as Daniel continues to pray, all of a sudden God does something pretty remarkable. In the middle of his prayer, he sends an angel to come and interrupt Daniel's prayer. How rude, right? We, we don't like it when our kids, you know, they're my, my oldest, she just loves to scream and yell. And I, daddy, dad, in the middle of prayer, I'm like, Ch -ch -ch, you know, like the little, be quiet. And but God's the interrupter here. He comes and interrupts Daniel's prayer. And listen to what he says. In verses 20 through 23, Daniel writes this. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, referring back to Daniel 7 and 8, came to me in swift flight in the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So in this in the middle of this beautiful prayer of adoration and confession and petition, God sends an angel to come and interrupt. He comes along Daniel's side. And his message to Daniel is that God has heard his prayers and that he is going to come and give Daniel insight and understanding. Can you guys imagine? I mean, I don't know if anyone here has ever experienced such a thing. I know I haven't. I don't think anyone here probably has had an angel show up in the middle of your prayers. You see, this isn't the norm in Scripture, is it? A lot of times in Scripture, especially leading up to Daniel, it's not common for God to come and interrupt and set an angel directly to the side of one of his people to come and interpret and make clear What's going on? You see, I think most of us would actually remember the opposite if we look at a case like Abraham and Sarah. All right, Abraham had been told that he would be given this, this promised son. And Abraham, all crusty and old already at 75, is, is thinking, I can't have kids. Did you, did you miss? I'm, I'm the second tent on the left. Uh, did you mean the first tent? And God assures him, no, I'm going to give you a promised son. And a year passes, another year passes, another year passes. 25 years pass until that prayer and that promise is answered. Now you see, for us, I think 
because of the culture we have grown up in and because of the technology we, we have, we actually expect God to answer our prayer the way he did Daniel. Right? We, we don't think God is one who makes us wait 25 years. Instead, we pray and we think that God should send an angel swiftly to our side to help us understand exactly who he is and what he's going to do. If you're anything like me, the culture has truly caused you to expect instantaneous results. Right? The internet keeps us updated to every event around the world in real time. I just read a statistic that 85% of the world has smartphones. That's far more than people have houses and cars. But why is it? It's because the phone gives us instantaneous results. The internet has shaped us and trained us to expect to get an answer in a second. Right? We order things on Amazon. They're at our doorstep the next day. We microwave our meals so they're ready within minutes. We speed in the carpool lane. Everything we do is instantaneous and fast. Why wouldn't we expect God to meet our demands in the same way? But you see, this cuts at the jugular at one of the many themes in Scripture, especially the theme of hope. You see, if we are a people who instantaneously need everything within a minute, it cuts off this thing that God has created our hearts for called hope. And you see, when what happens in our culture and with us, even as believers, is we will hope in something, and as soon as it's not met within a day or two or the time we think it should be met, we shift our hope from that onto something else. All right? And so our hope is always moving from one thing to another, making our hope far too small than it should be. Well, as Daniel lay prostrate in the presence of Gabriel... I'm sure he expected his prayers to be answered immediately. Why else would God send an angel? Why else would he send an angel to his side in that moment to interrupt? I'm sure that Daniel, his, his hope and his expectation to go home to Judah was something that he thought might even be quicker than Jeremiah had told him. Right? That's all he's wanted for a long time now is just to go home living in Babylon, eating their food, submitting to their rulers, living in a culture that's not his own. It would have been hard. And so I'm sure he thought that this angel was going to speed things up a bit for him. Well, that's not the case. In fact, what we're going to see in Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is not at all what Daniel was hoping for. And God is sending Gabriel with a message that is going to call Daniel to increase his hope far more than he has in the past. It's going to be a call to look far past Judah, far past getting out of exile, and look far more into the future and primarily place his hope on God and God alone. Well, Gabriel begins by saying in verse 24, he says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, 
to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, because you guys haven't been going with us through Daniel at Cleo, I have to give a quick little uh, setup or context to what's going on here. Daniel 7 through Daniel 12, which unfortunately some people don't preach in Daniel, is difficult. It's, it's often uh, defined as apocalyptic literature. Uh, apocalyptic literature is different than what we have today. Apocalyptic literature is primarily written to give us greater realities in pictures. Okay, so although it's words, we're supposed to read it and see things in pictures. This helps us understand Daniel 7 through 12, the second half of the book of Zechariah, a lot of Ezekiel, and primarily the whole book of Revelation. And if we read those literally only, I'm not saying there's not literal things in it, then we're actually going to miss God's overarching purpose in the text. And so it's really important. There are literal things, and I'm not saying we spiritualize or allegorize the text, but apocalyptic literature is meant for us to see pictures. Now, along with this in apocalyptic literature means that we can't just read numbers literally as well. Now, across the board, whatever view you have of this passage, any scholar or commentator will argue that when Daniel is talking about the 70 weeks, no one takes that as literal. Because 70 weeks would have been over in just over a year, and Daniel doesn't even get in back into Judah for another five to six years. So already we're going to see that this passage is difficult. Okay, But I want to remind you, apocalyptic, we're supposed to see pictures. Okay. Quick other disclaimer, just to remind you as I did at the beginning, no matter what happens in this passage, and no matter if you differ with me or differ among one another, we can have unity in a passage like this because it's difficult. Don't put your flag down at the end of the day on your view of Daniel and miss the overarching picture and purpose of what's going on here. So, when Gabriel declares to Daniel that 70 weeks are decreed about your people, it's meant to be something greater than just 70 literal weeks. One example of this in the New Testament of numbers not being used literally like that, but to give a picture is in Matthew 18. You know, Peter, the uh, favored apostle of Jesus, the one who believes he is very smart, that he's the one who's always willing to lay down his life for Jesus, the very uh, arrogant and pomp apostle. He comes to Jesus and he asks him a question, a question he believes he already knows the answer to, and he says in Matthew 18.21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And here, if you guys know much about the number seven, it uh, means completeness, fullness. Uh, it's never meant to be just literal. Peter, I don't think, meant just seven times, but he's trying to impress his Lord. But then Jesus, of course, as uh, he always does with Peter and us, increases the bar of forgiveness here. And he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, in the original language, it's actually seven times, 70 times seven, which would be 490. Uh, and I think all of us would say, Jesus doesn't mean here 
forgive 490 times only. And on the 491st, it kind of, now you got some freedom. Uh, if any of you in here have been married more than a year, you know that that 490 was done away with very quickly. And if it wasn't for 491 and following, marriage would not be continuing. And so we know that this isn't meant to be just a picture of how many times literally, but a picture of unending and full forgiveness. Well, the 70 weeks will include, as Daniel has come to learn from God's servant Gabriel, and don't miss this part, it's supposed to include an end to exile. That's what Daniel wants, right? An end to sin, sin atoned for, God bringing in everlasting righteousness, and so on, and so on. Really, Gabriel is coming, and he's trying to show Daniel that his pleas for God's mercy to forgive sins will actually be dealt with in a far greater way than Daniel hopes. You see, Daniel, at this point, he just wants to go back to Judah, right? And Daniel... 9, 1 through 19, when he started to confess his sins and the sins of the exiles, he's thinking that if God would just forgive him, that would be the means to get him back to Judah. That's, that's as far as he's seen. That's what he wants. But God is coming and interrupting and showing Daniel that hope is too small. That he needs to have a far larger hope, that he's too nearsighted, needs to look way farther out in the distance. And so God lays out a far greater thing to hope in than just returning to Judah. All right, I need you guys to agree with me for a second that you can handle the next seven to ten minutes or so as I transition from preaching to more teaching. Uh, I'm going to give you a view, just one view of this passage and walk you through these 70 weeks, but I need you to agree that you can handle it. Can I get a nod? We're, we're going to listen. We're going to work through this thing. And then all of a sudden, my tones will start changing, and you'll know we're back on, on path. But what I'm doing here is giving a view, one view, and there's many. I'm giving you one view, okay? And I believe it's right. That's why I'm preaching it. But I'm humble and open <laughs> to changing. I, put, I really mean that. But I'm going to walk us through. So we've got to walk through these 70 weeks to at least be faithful to the text. So Gabriel comes and he presents these 70 weeks. And he's going to break them into three sections. Okay, He's going to break them into three different points. And so the first one, he comes and he talks about the first seven weeks. Okay, Seven of the 70. And in verse 25, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Now, to understand this, the key is defining what Gabriel means by the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay, so we have to understand that. And if we look at Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 through 3, we actually get a pretty clear picture of this. It says this, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom 
and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So this decree of Cyrus was this God-ordained act. God coming and changing the heart of Cyrus and giving him this word of the Lord to rebuild the temple back in Judah and Jerusalem. And this is the same temple for Daniel that he once loved. right? If you look back to Daniel 1, you see that because of Israel's sin, that God had sent Nebuchadnezzar, which is a whole other sermon that God can use the leaders of this world that don't love him to accomplish his purposes. But he uses Nebuchadnezzar, a non-believer, a a vile idolater, to come in, ransack Judah and Jerusalem, drag all these God-loving people into exile for 70 years to discipline them. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, and so went God's discipline. But now that we're getting at the end of this 70 years, he uses another ruler, Cyrus, to go and rebuild the same temple that he used Nebuchadnezzar to destroy. Now, this was in 538 B.C. Historically, it's, it's pretty much uh, unavoidable and very clear in history. And, and this temple was rebuilt in 538 B.C. Now, when Gabriel says that there would be a coming of an anointed one there in verse 25, if you look throughout Scripture, this phrase, the coming of an anointed one, is most often used of who the high priest was. Now, the high priest in that time was no other than Ezra himself. So we wrap these two things together. You have King Cyrus and, and his decree to rebuild a temple and allow the people to go back to Jerusalem, the end of the exile, along with this high priest Ezra, this anointed one, all of a sudden, this seven weeks is is pretty clear. It's just God bringing his people out of exile and rebuilding the temple. Pretty simple, right? I say that humbly, I promise. In the next section of of the 70 weeks is what is called the 62 weeks. And Gabriel's going to come here. And you see, the seven weeks had kind of fulfilled Daniel's hopes. All right, it was, man, I'm going to give you what you want. The temple rebuilt. You're going back to Judah and Jerusalem. But now in this 62 weeks, this far greater of a period, God is going to move Daniel's eyes off of Judah, off of Jerusalem, off of the temple, and farther into Redemptive history. If you look with me at the second half of verse 25 and 26. Gabriel says this. It says, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat. Talking about the temple. But in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So these 62 weeks 
in a nutshell, I know it's a, a lot to just cut out, but in short, is this large, expansive time span from the temple being rebuilt all the way until the coming Messiah, to the death and resurrection of our Lord. Now, when Daniel had prayed for his sins and the sins of all the exiles to be forgiven, God's showing Daniel that he's going to actually send someone to be cut off, right, to be killed or separated so that sin will actually be taken care of once and for all. You see, Daniel thought that all he needed to do was confess sin so they can get back to, to Judah. You see, sin wasn't the biggest deal to Daniel. And God's saying, no, sin's actually far worse than you believe, but let's look far out into the future to where I'm actually going to deal with it in a far greater way than you could ever hope or imagine. Now, tied along with this, as we read in verse 25-26, is also the destruction of the city and the sanctuary. It's kind of ironic because the first seven weeks, right, were God using Cyrus to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem. And part of verse 26 is saying that this same temple and this same city will actually be destroyed. And I think it's God's way of kind of breaking in with Daniel and even for us and saying, man, these physical things, these things that we hope in so often, they're not worth putting your hope in. I'm going to cut all that stuff out and I'm going to get your hope onto me the way it was originally meant to be. Well, in 70 AD, uh, this one pretty much is across the board, uh, 70 AD brought a historical fulfillment of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah. The, the Roman uh, general Titus, he came in very quickly and destroyed the temple. Not a stone was left, and all of the people of God went fleeing from Judah. Now, Jesus told of these earlier on, so we shouldn't be surprised, and his disciples especially should not have been surprised in reading their epistles. I don't think they were. But Jesus says in Luke 21, 20, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know the desolation has come near. Similar language, right? This desolation. He also told them about the temple being destroyed in Matthew 24, 2. When he said, truly I tell you, not one stone will be left upon here, upon another. All will be thrown down. But even more striking is Jesus' reference to this prophecy in Daniel in Matthew 24, 15 and 16. When he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, right? Jesus isn't talking about thousands of years later. He's saying, when you see... The abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You see, from the crucifixion to our Lord, being cut off for the sins of his people, to the temple being absolutely destroyed and Jerusalem being ruined, this 62 weeks is showing us how remarkable God's word is that he could come to Daniel and interrupt his prayer and that these things would be precisely fulfilled the way God said they would. 
I mean, this should give Daniel, this should give us a great hope in God. That our hope should, should start to inflate, right? It should be bigger than what it was coming in here this morning. Well, the third and final section of the 70 weeks is explained as one week, right? So the shortest amount of time. Daniel says in verse 27, he says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now what we have here is the end, in a sense, of this beautiful prophecy, but I'll be honest with you, this is the most debated part of the whole passage. Uh, many people like to ascribe who this he is to all kinds of different people in history. Some in 70 AD, some in uh, 30 AD, some in you know 2012 uh, with Obama. You get all kinds of kooks, all kinds of crazy stuff going on here. And if, if that's you, I'm sorry, but I can assure you this is not Obama. Uh, and what's going on here, it, it, we have to at least be able to step back and say, okay, it's debated. But I think if we understand who the he is, which I'm not saying is easy, and I'm not even saying I'm right, but I'm pretty hopeful I am, then we actually can see this passage in a way where we don't miss the woods for the trees. You see, the he, I will argue, because he makes a strong covenant with many for a week, and we'll understand this a bit more as we go, is describing this veiled reference to the same one who will be cut off and put an end to the sacrificial system. This he is no, no other than a veiled reference to Jesus, the one who will lay down his life for his people, the one who will be the temple of God himself, the one who is meant to be our hope. If Jesus is the he in verse 27, it, it helps explain these two halves of this final week. You see, the first half is describing Jesus' earthly ministry and the once-for-all sacrifice that he himself would give to put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And the second half of the week most likely refers to the time we're in right now, between the ascension of our Lord and his second coming. I think that one's really clear, and most people fall pretty similarly along there with some differences, but I think this, this clearly places us in between what Paul and Peter and many biblical authors call the last days, right? That the last days begin at the resurrection of our Lord as this new creation was ushered in, and we await our Lord to return for us. You see, verse 27 is most likely a bigger picture of the time we are living in as those who have been forgiven for our sins and are awaiting our great Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, there's far more to be said and explained in regards to the details about this passage, but this isn't a class, this is not a Bible study, this is a sermon, and so we will continue. But in short, I would argue that verse 27, no matter where you fall, is meant to be this comforting assurance to God's people that Jesus is triumphant and he wins. That's it. 
So God is coming and he's answering Daniel's prayer for forgiveness and mercy in far greater ways than Daniel had ever imagined. God was showing Daniel that the content of his prayer, many times like ours, was right, but he was too nearsighted. Daniel's eyes were fixed on Judah and the temple, hoping to return to the sacrificial system once again. And Daniel thought that his hope was properly sized. He thought he had a good-sized hope. And we're not much different than Daniel, are we? Oftentimes, our our hopes are too small. We're we're too nearsighted as well, and, and we need help. How many of us in here look to the near future and believe that all things would just be made right if we can just get one more thing or things could be made the way we think they should be? Right? For some of you in here, it might be just getting that raise at work you feel like you've deserved for so long. It would relieve some of that pressure and you could finally get that status you've been looking for at work. For others of of you in here, it might be the kids, right? If, you're, if your kids could just become self-sustaining for like an hour so you can actually take a shower and eat a meal without them wanting more from you, then life would be easy. Yeah, amen, I'm with you. Uh, I mean, maybe for you it's even just getting out of debt, right? You, you look at all these college kids around you going on all these vacations and you're married with kids just figuring out how is it I even get an hour away and You're thinking, if I could just get out of debt, that would free us up to get babysitters and go on a vacation. Whatever it is, we all have these hopes that are just too nearsighted. They're just far too small. And the truth of the matter is that we all know that they're not going to answer these desires we have. I mean, if we were to have the ability to go back just a couple months or even a couple years and look at the things we were once hoping in, Many of these that we've actually received, were they enough? Right? The things that we've actually gotten in the past that we've hoped for have not satisfied because I can assure you and guarantee that every single person in here today is hoping in something right now. That those things that you got were not the end all to your hope. As I thought about this with myself this week and Praying for you guys, I, I thought of this line and just, it, I couldn't get it out of my head all week long. And it, it was this idea that the size of our hope is an indicator of the size of our God. That the size of our hope exposes and reveals how big we believe our God to be. And man, that's. For many of us, our, our hopes are just too small, showing that we, we really believe we have a puny and weak God who is not able to answer our greatest dreams and our greatest hopes. And so we, we deflate our hopes so that we can have sizable and attainable things rather than put it all on the line and hope that our God could actually meet the things we hope in. And as amazing as Daniel's prayer was in Daniel 9, God sent Gabriel swiftly to his side to interrupt and say, listen, I want to increase your hope. I want to make it bigger than just Judah. I want to make it bigger than the temple. You see, where Daniel wanted to return to exile, 
God was promising an eternal home, a place marked by perfect righteousness forever. Where Daniel desired the rebuilding of the temple, God was going to send his only son to be the temple of God, the presence of God in its fullness with his people. But far greater than this was the promise to deal with sin once and for all. You see where Daniel had confessed the sins of the exiles, hoping that that would be the means to getting back to Judah. God was coming to inflate and enlargen, largen? Make larger. Josh will send me a meme later. (laughs) God was coming to inflate Daniel's hope in a way that would show that his prayers were too small. That God's bigger than that. He can answer our wildest dreams and exceed our greatest expectations. You see, brothers and sisters, Daniel's need wasn't a return to the sacrificial system. Daniel and the exiles had the sacrificial system prior to exile. Like that's the craziest thing to me, that Daniel would hope to just get back to Judah so they could continue to give these rams and bulls and goats for their sins. And and God's coming in and saying, did you forget? I had to take you into exile because with the sacrificial system, you didn't love me enough. I brought you into exile because you loved other gods more than me. So Daniel, get your eyes off the dang temple. There's something far greater coming. And you need something far better to deal with your sin than just this year after year sacrificial system. God came to put an end to the sacrificial system so that people could see that their God was far bigger than that. Hebrews 7, 26 through 27 says it this way. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, including Ezra, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, Jesus took on flesh to be this sacrifice we needed, this end-all, once-for-all sacrifice. Where Daniel wanted primarily just to go home and his sins to be temporarily forgiven, God increased his hope and is increasing ours in a God who can put an end to sin once and for all. Hebrews 9, 11-12 says it this way, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, talking about the temple in heaven, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Remember where Daniel was was promised an eternal righteousness? It's because of the blood of Jesus that we get this eternal home, this eternal righteousness. Do you guys see now, as we start to step back and look at the passage as a whole, whole, that when we actually see the woods, what an accomplishment and what a beautiful thing it is, 
that God would actually come and say, Daniel, I'm not just going to deal with your sins to get you back into exile, but I mean once and for all. That when Jesus came and he spread his arms out on the cross for the sins of his people and he said, it is finished, he actually meant it. For those of us in here that are like me, if you're in here and you're like me, who when you continue to sin and, and the weight of it makes you feel like, man, maybe I just really don't believe or how can Jesus forgive me again? And you start to commit some kind of penance or prove yourself or work your way back to forgiveness, Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, no, as the east is from the west, I don't remember your sins. It's finished. They were nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago in history, and it is done. And I mean it when I say it is finished. In the same way, he came to interrupt Daniel and say, I'm telling you these things because you're greatly loved. You're on the other side of the cross. So look back and say, yes, I'm loved and it is finished. He doesn't remember your sins anymore. You see, Jesus has come to purchase us into an eternal kingdom where sin is gone for good and love reigns forever. And his work to do away with the sacrificial system was just the beginning of increasing our hope. You see, the author of Hebrews goes on and he also quotes Daniel's contemporary, the prophet Jeremiah. And if you remember in Daniel, when he had said that he will make a strong covenant with his people, the author of Hebrews picks up on this, uses Jeremiah's language of the new covenant, and explains what this strong covenant looks like. In Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, quoting Jeremiah 31, the author writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now listen. This is the new covenant promise, okay? It says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And say this with me, and I will remember their sins no more. How long will he remember our sins? No more. You see, in short, this, this great promise, this greater thing that God was doing and sending his son to be cut off and crucified and give us this eternal righteousness was to remember our sins no more. It was so we could be forgiven once and for all. But the hope even inflates even more, gets even greater as this promise to put the law in our hearts and our minds. It's the great work that Jesus promised. On the night before he had instituted the Lord's Supper, he had said that it was better that he would leave so that the Spirit could come. Now the Spirit comes and does this new covenant work of taking out these dead stony hearts and replacing them with hearts of flesh that would love the law, that would love their Lord, would believe they are forgiven. 
And the Spirit is doing also a greater work of what's probably the most amazing work of the Spirit, of applying the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to us. That, that's astounding. If that doesn't increase your hope, that Jesus' perfect life is considered yours now? If the death and resurrection of Jesus is yours, as Paul says in Romans 6, as surely as He died, so you were buried with Him, and as surely as He is raised, you will be raised with Him. If this doesn't increase your hope this morning, I don't know what will. Sins dealt with once for all. Considered righteous. Purchased into an eternal kingdom. Given the Spirit of God so that we will now love the law. Given the Spirit so that all the work of Christ is attributed and given to us into our account. But I want to leave you with one more thing in fusion. Our hope doesn't end there. You see, in the same way that the 62 weeks was this span between the Messiah being cut off and this second coming of the Lord, throughout the New Testament, we're told to eagerly expect the return of Jesus. And so I want to call you today to look back at the cross, see all of His faithfulness to you, but because of that faithfulness, let it increase the surety for you that Jesus will return like he said. And so get your eyes off the small hopes of this world. Yes, pray big things for your kids. Expect raises at work. Hope for things like that. But move your eyes to that second coming. When the one who has accomplished all this work for you. Who loves you. Is going to take you unto himself forever. Into a kingdom marked by perfect righteousness and love. That will be a day. So in Fusion Church, you don't have to have a small hope anymore. Increase your hope today and place it all on the God who greatly loves you. Amen? Let's pray. Goodness, Father, we, uh, whew, we confess that you have given us some hard texts, texts that have often led to disagreement rather than unity and Lord if we have missed the woods for the trees this morning we we pray for forgiveness but oh Lord if you have given us a picture of the woods of this grand picture of hope and redemptive history of your love for us you forgiving us and you giving us an eternal righteousness and promising to return for your people oh Lord let us respond with much gratitude. Spirit of God, I pray that you would come and break in the way that the angel Gabriel did with Daniel, that throughout this week when we start to notice that our hopes are too small and on things of this world, would you interrupt us and remind us of how worthy you are of our hope? So God, please do that. I pray you would bless Infusion Church as they walk together in a manner worthy of the gospel, that they would remind each other often, knowing that you have gifted them in different ways, that they would use their gifts to your glory and for the good of one another. And Lord, let them come back this week encouraging one another that they have a hope 
that is great, and it's because their God is great. In Jesus' name, amen.